My name's Peter. I'm a member of the church. Janine and I have been coming along for about a couple of years now. Um, and it's a privilege just to, uh, to start this uh, little mini-series on, on Advent. Um, we live in Isha. Um, uh, I'm a local surgeon. I work at Kingston Hospital. And um, I think the, the other thing that I've noticed this morning is that some of the things that God's been bringing in by the Holy Spirit in our worship is actually a recurring theme. Because some of the things that he's been bringing out to me in preparing for this passage is exactly what we've been singing about, we've been praying about, been worshiping about. So I just encourage you to be open to the Holy Spirit as you listen. Because at the end there'll be an opportunity to worship again and maybe come down, you may have a word of knowledge, you may have a word of prophecy, you may have something that you want to bring to the church right at the end. And I would encourage you to do that because I think God's actually been speaking this morning. But it's great. But what does Advent mean? For somebody who went to an old grammar school, I w- it was insisted that I did Latin for the first year, and when I said I wanted to do medicine, they nearly made me do Latin for five years. Gee whiz. Oh, crumbs, that would have been disaster. I'm so bad at languages. But ad- um, Advent is the combination of two words, ad and venere in Latin. It was then uh, became Old English, and it's been moved from Old English to our word Advent. And simply it means, the combination of the two words ad and venere, it means to the coming. Or, in modern parlance, the arrival. And this is a time of year where we look forward and we meditate and we think about the arrival of Jesus Christ. Um, And it's a time to reflect on that and what that really means. And that's what this little mini-series is all about. But we're going to look at the birth of Jesus through a very specific pair of spectacles. We're going to look at at it through the eyes of Jesus' mother. Now, although Mary has grown over history to almost be, in some eyes, a a mythological or a cult figure to some, uh, or for others, perhaps uh, larger than life, the Bible really doesn't say very much about Mary. We see her right at the beginning, we see her a bit in the middle, and we see her at the end of Jesus' life. But this says very little. but, But what we do know is that she was a relatively simple, devout Jewish teenager, when we first meet her, engaged to be married to a carpenter called Joseph, and then from there, somebody who watched from the sidelines as her son grew, started to do some amazing things, and then watched him die. Someone, perhaps, who didn't really understand everything that Jesus was about as, he watched her, as she watched him grow but was humbly able to accept the fact that she was very much part of his life and he was part of hers. I also have to be aware at this point that she was a female figure. Now, although I'm brother to three sisters and no brothers, and I'm father to three daughters and no sons, um, our dog is female and I've been happily, happily, happily married for 32 years. Okay, I still wonder if um, being a man entitles me to talk about being a woman. (laughs) So for for those of you who really don't think I ought to be up here, I'm really sorry. (laughs) For those of you um, who perhaps can accept that, uh, is a man trying to talk about, uh, trying to put himself into a woman's shoes. Now, there's a vision I don't want anymore. But anyway, um, um, I I hope that you'll help me to try... Now, let's move us forwards. Jesus is really being announced in the passage that we're covering today. And this is the passage. I'm going to read it to us because I think it's important to get to hold grips with this. Um, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee 
to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favour with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. Or in Hebrew, it's Yeshua. That's the root name of Joshua. Um, he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, uh, asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will call, be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unavailable to conceive is in her sixth month. Isn't that lovely? Unavailable to conceive. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, uh, For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's master, Mary answered. May your word be to, be to, to me, to, may your words to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. What a beautiful passage. What a wonderful passage that is. We're in northern Israel, we're in Galilee, observing a really highly unusual domestic scene of a young engaged woman um, <clears throat> in conversation with a supernatural being about the circumstances of the birth of her first child. So it can't be any more unusual, really, if you think about it in those terms. And what I really want to try and get across to this is, in our theme that I'm trying to get across this morning, is that faced with a God who does things differently, we're asked to have faith in a loving Heavenly Father, a good, good Father, because we're loved. That's who we are, and that's who he is, as we sung earlier on. But before we do that, when faced with this passage, I want to ask you what your response to it is. What's your initial thoughts about it? In this passage, we have the announcement of Mary's pregnancy, her role in the birth of Jesus, and I wonder what you really think. I think for many in this room, it'll be the cornerstone of the faith in which they believe. God chose to identify so closely with his creation that he was born as a baby to save his people. Or perhaps for you, this passage is just simply a nice, cuddly feeling. It's become so familiar at this time of year that it's entered the romantic mythology of Christmas along with snow on Christmas Day and gathered round the television with the rest of the family to listen to the Queen's speech. It has that log fire feeling of carols from King College Chapel, mulled wine, Christmas pullovers that look appalling, and the smell of turkey. In short, it's a nice story for the time of year. Or perhaps you're the religious skeptic that says, well, this is just something made up by Luke, Dr. Luke. That's one for our profession. Dr. Luke <clears throat> and the disciples who made Jesus out to be more important than he was by emphasizing a uniqueness to his birth to justify the claims for his death and resurrection. Or perhaps you're a realist, and I suspect there's something of being a realist in all of us when we read this passage. Because as a realist, 
I suspect that we would adopt the same position as Mary's parents would have adopted when they first heard this. And certainly the position that we knew her fiancé Joseph believed, at least at first. And that's to say, well, let me put it like this. What would your response, if your 16-year-old daughter turned up and she declared that she was pregnant and then informed you that she hadn't had sex that God was the father because an angel had told her and no, she couldn't prove anybody, prove, prove anything of it because they were the only two in the room. You think about it. Why would you, how would you respond to that? Well, I think the first response would be sceptical incredulity. Well, yeah, really, pull the other one. It's got bells on. Okay. Or perhaps the other, the other thing, as, as, a, as a dad, I can imagine this one, it would be anger. Now, don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. Why have you brought shame on this household? Why have you brought shame on us, on yourself, on your family? Don't lie to me. Or disappointment. I thought we brought you up better than this. Now, who's the father? No, 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 no. Who's the real father? You see, for perhaps for Mary's parents, I suspect they weren't able to, to see beyond the sex. And isn't that true of society in general? and perhaps of the church in particular, that we can't see beyond the sex to the bigger picture because we're more concerned about what women choose to do with their bodies than what God is doing in people's lives. Now I shall step off my soapbox as a male feminist at this point and perhaps move back to our story. But you can imagine that conversation that Mary must have had with her parents or her family and the knife cutting the atmosphere and the simultaneous feelings of sadness Shame, discomfort, bemusement, and amusement, perhaps. But let's not get this out of proportion. For Mary's family, this would have been devastating, completely and utterly devastating. The humiliation and shame would have been acute within the Jewish law. They would have been subject of gossip. Social and religious standing would have been at risk, and so would Mary's life. She'd already said that the baby wasn't Joseph's, her fiancé. So this was adultery in the eyes of the law. And the, and the penalty for adultery was stoning. No matter how barbaric you may feel that, that is, that was the law at that time. And we hear later on that Joseph prepared quietly to drop the relationship. And I think that says, I think that says a lot about Joseph. One, that he was a, wasn't a zealot for the law, and two, that he was, neither ven- he was not vengeful. And three, I think he probably loved Mary very much for doing that, for not wanting to put her life at risk. Or perhaps you can imagine another conversation a little bit closer to home. <clears throat> One in which... Um, well, guys, have you ever been in a conversation when you know you're right? You know you're right. You know you absolutely know you're right. Nobody will believe you. Okay, so it goes something like this. Look, I did not eat that last piece of cake on the table. Yes, it was Rachel's cake, and it's the best cake in the world, I know. But I didn't eat it. Look, I know it was your cake. I didn't eat it. It wasn't me. Yes, I know I like cake. I probably like cake more than, more than I should do, but I didn't eat the cake. Silence. Silence? Yep. You with me on this, guys? Yeah, husbands, yeah? You hearing me? Okay, <clears throat> then, you, then you produce the clincher. You said, you said, you said it wasn't me, it was the dog. 
more silence. And you think you, you produce the second clincher. Well, well, look, my daughter was with me. She, you know, go and get, go and get Becky. She was there. She was with me. She saw it. More silence, and the response comes back. I just don't believe you. You're both in it together. Have you ever been in that situation? Now, it's interesting when <clears throat> the founder of, modern, uh, of, of Keynesian economics said this. He said, when my information changes, I alter my conclusion. What do you do? Now, we all like to think we're like this. But I'd like to ask the question, are we? When faced with truth, do we change our conclusion? Two students, Nihon and Reifler, from Michigan and from Georgia State University, did a little experiment in 2006. They produced fake newspaper articles on topical political issues at the time, which was around the Iraq war at that, mo- at that particular time. <clears throat> and they presented those fake articles to <coughs> groups of people. And they looked at their response. They let them read them through. And then they gave them the true articles. Okay, so you've got the Daily Mirror on the left, and you've got uh, Amer- a New York and the New Yorker on, on the right. Okay, the false and the true. Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, Daily Mirror, don't sue me, please. But uh, <clears throat> okay, they presented them with the true version. It's interesting to think as to what actually happened at this point. Let's move us because they found that in general. People fell into two camps. Now, this is probably a little bit obvious. Fell into those who opposed the war, disagreed with the fake article, and believed the true. Those that agreed with the war or supported it believed the fake article and disagreed with the true. But what the interesting thing was out of this study was this. The stronger you held the false belief, the more convinced you were that that belief was true in the first place. So if you hold a false belief, the more evidence you see to the contrary, the more you hold the false belief. So perhaps we're not like Maynard Keynes after all. Perhaps when we're confronted with truth, we find that we entrench ourselves in our own beliefs and our own thoughts. And that's called the backfire effect. Now I have to be a little bit careful here because people like Richard Dawkins actually will accuse us of that. but I think we have a reasonable faith and a believable faith for other reasons that Richard Dawkins doesn't. So the answer to the question is, well, what's this got to do with Mary? What's this got to do with Mary? Well, actually, actually, when you think about it, when that conversation, Mary just didn't stand a chance, did she? She didn't stand a chance. She could, have, she could have protested until she was blue in the face that she'd been spoken to by an angel and that she was going to deliver the, 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 the birth of the, of the Holy One and they wouldn't have believed because the backfire effect was in place. You see, they would have had to have suspended their belief that a baby equals sex and because human spontaneous conception was ludicrous, it would have pushed them further into their disbelief. But the trouble is, Mary still doesn't stand a chance for the same reasons. Because we still judge her in the same way. We're still faced with a challenge to suspend the laws of nature to believe Mary's account. To believe her account of a conception of Jesus. And for many in this world, this passage will push them simply further into their scepticism. They'll backfire. So as I say, perhaps unlike Keynes' assertion that when the facts change, we don't change our conclusion, particularly when we don't care to believe the facts. 
But that reminds me of another little scenario. Chapter 5 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do you remember this? Beautiful passage. Um, Edmund and Lucy get into Narnia on separate occasions, and they meet up after various encounters. And Lucy, who was unbelieved until that point, says, you're here. You can come back with me and tell the others that it's true. And they go back through the wardrobe. They find Peter and Susan. They're sceptical. And what does, uh, what does uh, Edmund do? He lies. He lies. And in order to take this further, they go to a higher authority. They go to the professor. And it goes something like this. The professor listens without interrupting. At the end of the story, he says, how do they know that Lucy's story, this incredible story, isn't true? And Susan's taken aback. She mentions that Edmund was only pretending, and the professor asked, well, which is more trustworthy? who is more trustworthy, Edmund or Lucy? And Peter says, until now, Lucy is the more trustworthy. Susan suggests that Lucy could be mad, but the professor insists that Lucy's clearly not mad. She's sane. And finally, the professor puts the case to Peter and Susan logically. Either Lucy is telling lies, or she's crazy, or telling the truth. She never told lies before. She's obviously not crazy. So you have to assume she's telling the truth. C.S. Lewis was really quite insightful, wasn't he? He's, and the prof- he puts this in the professor's mouth. He says, if there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, I should not be surprised to find that other world, that other world has separate time of its own. And however long you stayed there, it would never take up any of our time. On the other hand, I don't think many girls of her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she'd been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable time before coming out and telling stories. <laughs> We've no evidence to suggest that Mary was ever promiscuous. We have evidence to suggest that Joseph loved Mary, and Mary probably loved him. She was a good Jewish girl. She'd never previously, as far as we were aware, brought shame on any aspect of the family, then or ever. She clearly was somebody who I, uh, would, would lie to, or make up stories. Now, perhaps I'm putting or, or, or making conjecture out of this passage, but I wouldn't suspect that Mary was a fantasist. The trouble is, <clears throat> her family did believe all of those things at that moment in time, and we're challenged to see beyond that. We're challenged to suspend our belief in something as big as normal pregnancy, But to do so, we have to believe in something bigger. We have to believe in a bigger world than the one that we see and the one that we can touch. And that's what a a miracle is. Now, I've been brought up in the scientific tradition. Um, I work within a scientific framework. And I can't tell my parents, uh, my my patients rather, sorry, parents, patients, um, that surgery is either magic or miraculous. I believe there's something, some aspect of the miraculous in the way we're made. But I don't think I'd get very far as a surgeon if I'd say that my surgery was, uh, was miraculous. Um, I think people would walk out of the door fairly sceptical at that point in time. I have to believe that the body works by a series of understandable rules that we use medically to help people and cure people and change people's lives. But I've seen things that I just do not understand and go beyond the scientific method. I have a patient of mine, she was 10 at the time when she came to see me, and if those of you are worried about confidentiality, I have her explicit permission to share this story. 
Her parents were friends, friends at a previous church, and they brought her to see me in my consulting room at the hospital, and she had a hernia, a little hernia here, what we call an epigastric hernia. Tiny thing. Very common in young women or, or uh, in girls and young women, particularly sporty young women. Wasn't causing any symptoms, but it was just there. And part of the consultation, because we were, we were all Christians, um, is that actually we prayed pray, pray together as in my consulting room for her. And I put her on my waiting list. Epigastric hernia repair. Tick. Two or three weeks later, the parents came up to me at church and said, something strange has happened. I said, yeah, okay. He said, well, our daughter, the lump's not there anymore. I said, what do you mean the lump's not there anymore? You just can't induce it, that's all. You have to push them out. <clears throat> so let me have a look. And I had a look. I couldn't find it. And, but believe you me, as a surgeon, I have ways of making hernias pop out, I tell you. <clears throat> that's my business, all right? I know how to make a hernia pop. And, uh, <clears throat> okay. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I couldn't make it come out. I think I can't understand this. And we had to come to the conclusion that something bigger than the world that I can touch and see had happened at that moment in time and God had intervened. And God, for whatever reason, had chosen to take away a small, painless, incidental hernia in a 10-year-old girl. She's now over 20. It's never occurred before again since. She's never seen it since. And I can't understand it via the scientific methods. Sometimes we do have to suspend the fact that God, our own thinking, even within the framework that we're trained, to say that God can send a special down the line. Because that's what miracles are. But why Mary? Well, why Mary was chosen as opposed to Jane or Kylie, I've no idea. But actually... Why does God choose? It's a good question. I don't know why God chooses or why he chooses a particular person. My father, who was an atheist, always complained to me that, look, if if God can do a miracle in somebody else's eyes, I'm not going to believe until he does a miracle in my life. Interestingly, he did go on to become a Christian, but not through a miracle. That's the way we think about it, isn't it? There's a little bit of jealousy that comes in. Why Mary? Not me. Okay. But actually, in the end, we have to leave God to choose. And why does God choose one for miraculous and one for the other? I don't know. But I believe this passage gives us some idea as to why Mary was the right person. How, How she came to be able to believe the angel where others would not and suspend her own belief in the nature of pregnancy and strengthen her resolve to endure the mocking of others. I believe that her unique attitude reflected God in her heart and her actions. And that's what God could see in Mary. I believe uh, because uh, God trusted, or because her trust, Mary's trust, was based on God's support for her that she had already started to recognize. And because she accepted God had a bigger plan than just her circumstances. So firstly, that unique attitude that we see in this passage. The passage simply says she is highly favoured. The passage simply says that she's highly favoured. But the message version puts it a lot more poetically. It says this. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her her and said, You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. 
That's a very lovely thing to say to a young, terrified teenager. <laughs> you think about it. This was God wanting to put Mary at her ease and say that she was special. While Mary's family could no longer see that beauty because of the magnitude of the shame that they brought upon them, God knew that her attitude of heart reflected her actions in and around the home and the community. There was something already of God's heart in Mary's heart, which meant that both hearts were united. And from this passage and the message, who can say that God can't be romantic? And blokes, I think we ought to take notice of words like this when it comes to our own relationship. So God saw something unique in Mary because of the beauty of her heart, which reflected itself in her actions, that relationship with God already. But because um, her trust was based on God's support already, she began to recognize that. She knew that God would support and confirm the unbelievable. Her trust was based on his trust in her. He hadn't left her in the lurch before, and he wouldn't now. This passage says that Elizabeth, her cousin, was pregnant as well. She was barren in her own age. The community knew that. She couldn't have kids, and suddenly she was pregnant, six months pregnant. And Mary could confirm that for herself later on when she went to visit Elizabeth. This was God confirming his word to her. We also knew to know too that God re uh, revealed himself to Joseph, who then called off that separation that he was planning from Mary. God intervened again to turn away her shame. And as Mary grew older and watched her son mature, he was able to see the uniqueness of his son, the actions of her, uh, of her son, and remember, as the Bible puts it elsewhere, and store them in her heart. In short, the passage tells us that she believed that when God spoke, his word was true, his word would never fail, and it would never fail her. Where else can somebody with a heart like that go but to accept? In short, God's faithfulness to her meant that she could bow the knee. I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. There's nowhere else for a heart like that to go. And finally, <clears throat> she was able to accept that God had a bigger plan. The passage also tells us of a purpose involved with, this, uh, with, with Mary at this time. Something bigger than the virgin birth itself. Now, it's going to take time to unpack some of the hidden meaning in this passage um, for, uh, for Jews and early Christians, but the, the passage was already used, or Luke's you, you already used the word, uh, the term, the word. Now, that has a specific meaning, which I won't unpack, but this particular passage will be that uh, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God is one of those phrases with a hidden meaning. It would mean a lot to a believing Jew at that, moment in, at that point in time because it says in a few words uh, something that is actually wrapped up in the tradition of the Old Testament. Because, you see, the Old Testament predicts the arrival of a Holy One, a Messiah, uh, that's why in some circles Jesus is called Yeshua Mashiach, Mash Mash Jesus Messiah. 
to rescue God's people from tyranny. Tyranny is seen as an outside oppressive force and it was rife at that time because Israel was under Roman occupation. They were a tyrannical force. But freedom at that time would mean that they could live with their own customs, with their own faith, without fear of contradiction. When will God send the Messiah and overthrow the Romans? When, when will our king arrive? <laughs> but God's plan would exceed even this. God's holy one would not be a warrior, but a baby. God's holy one would not be a warrior, but his own son. A baby that would be God incarnate, God with us, humanity in the frail shell of a body. Imagine a God so identifying with his creation that when he saw it going to hell in a handcart, his response was to come and share that life in order to transform the life of his creation. To live amongst us, to subject himself to the precarious miracle of childbirth and live in the poverty and dust of first century Israel. This warrior was no conventional warrior at all, with armour and spear or chariot. He was equipped with much more powerful weapon. You see, this warrior was equipped with a love for you and me. That's who we are. That's who we are. Loved. That's who we are. A love predicted in the Old Testament, firstly through Jeremiah. I have loved you with an everlasting love, says God. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This was God's faithfulness continuing into the history of Israel. But in the New Testament, God unpacks that a little bit more. And this through the verses of John that we know so well. For this is how God the world, that he gave, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. There's the big picture unpacking unpacking itself. This wasn't for some parochial nation um, in the Middle East. This was for the world. This was not to bring freedom from a tyrannical regime. This was to bring people into eternal life, something bigger and better and greater. A Messiah who was set to overthrow in us all that stops us knowing and appreciating God. A Messiah who wants to overthrow the oppression that we put on our own voices, our own lives every day. The heart that drags us down, the voice that says, I'm not good enough, to overthrow that and ultimately to overcome the death that separates us from God himself and give us the prospect of being close to him forever. For Mary, this was a God who would turn her shame into honour. And for us, this is a God who would turn our shame into honour. Maybe the band could come back down. So how would we to respond to Mary, uh, to this passage about Mary? How would we respond to a God who turns up and says, trust me, I have something bigger for your life? (laughs) Because I believe he's doing that right now. I think he's doing that in this room. I think he's doing that through every time you come in front of uh, a God who wants to save you and love you and care for you and be by your side. But I do think specifically he's challenging us now. 
can we suspend the belief that God couldn't do something with me, that we throw up all the time? Could he overcome the arguments within us that we have? I'm too insignificant. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm untalented. I'm ungifted. I'm too burdened elsewhere. I don't have the resources. What are our excuses that Mary didn't have? Let's be like her. All she had at this moment in time was her femininity and a trusting heart. (laughs) But she accepted that God saw her as beautiful and worth dying for. Let's be the same. Let's us see God as, um, as the way he sees us. Accept that he sees us as beautiful and worth dying for. Let's accept that he will be our support in everything that we do. The doing in our lives need not be our strife, but the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us as he comes upon us. And accept that Jesus has a far bigger plan than your life for your life than the mundaneness that we often see and feel around us. You see, he wants you to join his family. He wants you to know that you're loved. I think with that challenge, I think it would be good to turn back to God in worship, back to our Heavenly Father, and thank Him for the Lord Jesus Christ. And during this time, just be open to that challenge of the Holy Spirit. What do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be? What do you want me to do before you? What's your plan for my life? And if you're not sure about whether you want Jesus in your life, then the prayer team down here will be here to talk to you. Just come and talk. If you are sure, then come and talk and pray. (laughs) Or perhaps you want to be a servant like Mary and you want to start saying yes again where previously you were saying no. And you want to see the Holy Spirit come upon you again with that peace, that beauty, that love, that quiet gentleness that perhaps is edged out in a busy life. Well, then come down and receive some prayer. Come down and find the living God and let the Holy Spirit rest upon you. Let's stand and sing again.